Hi, friends. This is Pastor Dan Jackson. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Jacobswell Church. My hope and prayer is that this message will be a blessing to you and lead you into worshiping and enjoying our great and gracious God. With that said, let me encourage you to use this message as a supplement to and not a replacement of a local church. Christ did not establish his church simply for us to consume messages, but so that we could be intimately invested in each other's lives as an authentic covenant community. Again, thank you for listening. And if you want more information about Jacobswell Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Spencer, I am the pastor of care and counseling here. Uh, so they uh, dig me up from the basement about once a year uh, to come back from my comfortable, cozy office and preach to you. Uh, so this is that time. Uh, today our passage is Mark chapter 6, verses 30 through 44. Uh, and in your red Bibles, that is page 841. Uh, a lot of the chairs have red Bibles on the, under them. There's also red Bibles in the back uh, in those little bookshelves. So one of my very favorite professors in seminary was Dr. Sklar. Uh, he was an Old Testament professor, and at the beginning of every class, he would do a call and response. So he would say, start with the Bible, and we would say, not with the commentary. Context is king. It would be good, and we would respond, to take an independent Hebrew reading course. That one was a little self-motivated for him, uh, and it didn't work on me. I didn't take one. However, the first two did stick. Um, and today, uh, it's particularly relevant, this idea that context is king. As we dig into this passage, we'll see. So with that in mind, let's remind ourselves a little bit of this context. Uh, at the beginning of Mark chapter 6, we see Jesus sending out the apostles in pairs. Uh, and they're being sent to heal, uh, to teach, uh, and to do God's work. And as they're doing this, uh, we have the story of John and his martyrdom, his death. And the disciples actually have to go and retrieve his body and bury him. And it's in this place that they come back to Jesus. Uh, and that's where we find ourselves in today's passage. So let's read. Again, that's page 841 in your Bibles. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. 
And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and compassionate God, a God who feeds us. Father, we ask that you would be with us this morning, that through the preaching of this word, that you would indeed feed us, that we would grow as we nourish ourselves on your word. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. Back in 2013, Kent Bratley and his family decided to leave America and move to Liberia, Africa. Brantley felt called by God to serve as the doctor and to care for those who were sick and in need. It wasn't long after beginning their work there, however, that an epidemic broke out. The deadly Ebola virus was spreading throughout West Africa. And as the cases mounted, Brantley pivoted to caring for those who came down with the virus at a treatment center in their village. Suddenly, Brantley's life consisted of copious amounts of protective gear, anxiety as he sought to avoid contamination, and a front row witness to the ravages of death as 90% of those contracting the disease died. Life went on, a few months passed, and those contracting the disease continued to get sick. He found himself dropping off his family at the airport to to attend a wedding. Brantley's work continued, however, and he returned to care for the sick and for the dying. Then only a few days later, with his family in the States, Brantley woke up feeling under the weather. His health declined rapidly, and he soon tested for the Ebola virus. It was positive. Brantley was eventually transferred back to the States, where, praise be to God, he miraculously recovered. But even having survived, it took five months for him to return to health, physically, and he reports it took five months to return to health emotionally. God had called Brantley to do his work, and as we so often find to be the case, this work was not easy. It left him with feelings of exhaustion and pain. Like Brantley experienced, doing the work God can lead us to do leads us to places of pain and exhaustion. And in a lot of ways, I think that we should expect this. The gospel is a story that we are called to live out, and it is one of pain and exhaustion. The disciples are also experiencing this. They have just returned from the hard work God has called them to do. They are tired and they are in pain, coping with the recent tragedy of John's martyrdom and the reality of the hardships of doing God's work. Now, I know that when we think about the disciples, it's easy to put them into another category a holier-than-I category, to consider the work that they did and the life that they were called to as something too different, too removed from us. However, these disciples were human, and they were called, just like you and me, to do God's work. Let me reiterate this. Each and every one of us here today is called in a unique way to do God's work, just like the disciples were just like Kent Brantley was. And I'm guessing that all of us, at some point in our lives, can relate 
to the pain and exhaustion of doing this work that God has called you to do. For you, doing God's work might look like fostering and the sleepless nights that come with it, the stress caring for hurting kids, the newly added relationships to juggle and endless appointments that are now added to your schedule to care for them. Could look like witnessing to friends or neighbors, colleagues or family, the lost relationships that you face as you do this and are rejected for for speaking the truth, or judgment from neighbors being labeled the crazy Christian on the block, or you might find yourself on the outs from certain circles that you used to enjoy, even discrimination at work. Or it could look like seeking to disciple your kids well, kids who rebel and reject the gospel, kids who take a lot of time and energy to care for well, kids who leave you feeling depleted and run down, little left in the tank as you've put them first. If you are faithful in pursuing God's call in your life, if you seek to do the work that he has called you to do, at some point or another, you will find yourself experiencing pain and exhaustion. Today's passage teaches us that when we find ourselves in this place, we have a God that we can turn to. It encourages us with, as a Presbyterian, quite conveniently, three reasons why we can have faith to turn to God in the midst of our pain and exhaustion. We can do this trusting that God will see our pain and exhaustion, God will tend tend to us in our pain and exhaustion, and that God will satisfy us in our pain and exhaustion. So first, when we turn to God in that pain and exhaustion, we can trust that he will see us. If you're honest with yourself this morning, I'm guessing that you would admit that all too often, you live as if God does not see your pain, that he does not see your exhaustion. Instead, you listen to the seeds of doubt, the words that say, God can't possibly know of my pain, or else he would have taken it away. He must not be listening to my prayers. Or, I'm not good enough, I'm not important enough, I'm not fill-in-the-blank enough for God to pay attention to. He has bigger things to pay attention to. Or God doesn't listen to me, I'm too bad a person. Or finally, maybe it's my pain and exhaustion is trivial compared to theirs. God must be too busy with them to pay attention to me. So we might think, why do we do this? Why do we think this way? And my thought is that I believe that we are so used to being unseen by others and even failing to see others around us that we expect the same from God. We're used to this world filled with disconnection. Why would we expect a God that we cannot see to see us? Go with me on this and think of a situation where you have felt unseen by someone close to you or maybe someone that you have failed to see that is close I'm guessing that quite quickly you can come up with a number of these, but just in case you're having trouble, let me tell you a little story about a time when I didn't see someone that means a lot to me. This would have been about seven years ago. Uh, Molly and I were living back in St. Louis. I was attending seminary, and we were trying to wait to have kids until after I graduated. So one evening, as I sat on the couch with my BDB English and Hebrew lexicon studying, Molly came out to me to tell me that she had been feeling funny lately. She wasn't sure what was going on, but she was considering going out and buying a pregnancy test, just to see if that's what it was. Well, me, being a foolish, naive, and 
frankly frightened 24-year-old, told her she should wait. I told her we shouldn't spend the money on something that in my mind was quite frankly impossible. So being a gracious wife, Molly waited. Thankfully, God placed some very wise, mature, and direct women in my life that I worked with at the church. After our staff meeting, we went back to the copy room and began prepping for the week, and I was rehashing our conversation uh, that Molly and I had had the night prior. I, was telling, I got to the point in the story where I was telling Molly not to buy a $2 pregnancy test because I didn't think we should spend money on that. And I will never forget the look that my friend gave me as she turned around from the cutting board that she was working at, the look of disbelief and horror plastered upon her face. And it was then I instantly knew I had messed up. I had failed to see the anxiety and concern that Molly was experiencing as she wondered if she may be pregnant with our first child. Well, I came home with a pregnancy test that night, and we found out that we were indeed expecting Elizabeth. There can be so many reasons why we fail to see another person. It could be that we're distracted. It could be our selfishness. If we see them, we have to deal with them, and we don't want to. I did not want to deal with pregnancy. Uh, That sounded really scary. So maybe it's our anxiety, the stressors in our life that are blinding us to it. Maybe we don't know what to look for. Our own inexperience, our own ignorance gets in the way. The list can go on. But the good news is this. None of these things happen with God. God sees everything, and he understands everything. Job 34, 21 tells us that his eyes are on man, and he sees all his steps. Job 28, 24 reads and tells us that he sees everything under the heavens. And finally, Psalm 147, 5 tells us that his understanding is beyond measure. So we know that God sees all and that he understands all that he sees. We can rest knowing that every bit of pain and exhaustion that comes about as we do his work is seen and known by God. Let's see how this plays out in Mark 6. Read with me. Verse 30. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all they had done and taught. Here we see the simple but profound truth that Jesus listened. He cared about what the disciples were coming to tell him upon their return. Jesus delighted in knowing what the disciples had to report to him. We can trust that Jesus will listen to us too. Verse 31 goes on to say, And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. I can imagine here that as the disciples returned and told Jesus all that they had done, the many people in need of healing, the times they had indeed had to shake the dust off their feet and move on, of their experience of having to recover John's body and bury him, that Jesus not only heard, but Jesus understood the fatigue and the pain the disciples were experiencing. 31 goes on, For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. So, so far we witnessed Jesus listening, and now we witness Jesus seeing the pain and exhaustion of the disciples. While it's good to pray to let God know where we're at, we can trust that God knows and understands us, even when we feel we are too busy or too unaware of our own need. 
how encouraging to have a God who knows us and sees us regardless of our ability to communicate to him. Church, it is clear that Christ and God sees and understands our pain and exhaustion, but this isn't enough. A couple verses later, as the crowd have found Jesus in the twelve, Mark reports a vital part of Jesus' nature. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were sheep, they were like sheep without a shepherd. It is because of God's compassion that we know that as God sees and understands our pain and exhaustion, he will not leave us alone in it. And so we see next in today's passage that when we turn to God in our pain and exhaustion, we can trust that God will tend to us in it. I've recently started reading the Chronicles of Narnia with Elizabeth. We're working our way through the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Uh, And later on, uh, depending on your preference for what the actual order is, in the fourth book, Prince Caspian, there is a scene at the end where Aslan is finally making Caspian the king. Their brief exchange goes like this. Welcome, prince, said Aslan. Do you feel yourself sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia? I, I don't think I do, sir, said Caspian. I am only a kid. Good, said Aslan. If you had felt yourself sufficient, it would have been proof that you were not. Through this brief exchange, C.S. Lewis is helping his readers to get a glimpse at a timeless lesson. As we grow up, often, and sadly so, we lose our childlike faith. As we age, we replace this childlike faith and dependence on God with a faith and dependence on our own increasing experience, wisdom, skills, and knowledge. We trick ourselves into believing a lie that we are sufficient to do God's work all on our own, that we are sufficient to tend to ourselves. This is on display in the actions of the disciple. Verse 35, And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate hour, place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. The disciples felt they didn't need God. They simply needed a plan. Rather than turning to Jesus and asking for his help to care for the hungry crowd, they came to him with their own solution. Thankfully, Jesus didn't go along with their plan. Instead, he called them out. 37, but he answered them, you give them something to eat. Jesus, in his goodness, is drawing out the disciples' lack of sufficiency. We see here that Jesus passes over the supposed wisdom of the disciples' initial plan. I believe there are two reasons for this. First, their plan wouldn't have worked. Three times throughout today's passage, it said that they had gone to a desolate place. There would not have been enough resources in the surrounding area to feed a crowd of 10,000 people, men, women, and children. But more importantly, I believe Jesus wanted to cut to the heart of the matter, that no matter how they strove, the disciples would not be able to tend to the crowd's hunger themselves. Back in verse 31, Jesus saw that the disciples couldn't even take care of their own hunger. So how could they expect to take care of the crowd's? The disciples begin to acknowledge their own inadequacy as they respond to Jesus. They reply, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? You see, this is likely a sarcastic response from the disciples. They know that this isn't possible, 
There's no way that they have what's likely about eight months of wages on them. They don't have that kind of money. Nor would the, res the villages around them likely have the resources for them to buy all of that food. The disciples are being forced to reckon with their inability to tend to the crowd's hunger. But it doesn't end there as Jesus continues to make clear the disciples' lack of sufficiency. Verse 38 reads, And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, Five and two fish. Church, here we have it. This is who we are. We are a five loaves of bread and two fish kind of people. When it comes to our ability to tend to others through our own power, in a world endlessly filled with hungry and starving people, our self-striving measures measure up to about five loaves of bread and two fish. In our own strength, we will always fall short in a dramatic fashion. We don't have what it takes. And so if we try, we will quickly discover, just as the disciples did, that we are shockingly inadequate and underqualified to tend to the needs of those around us, even to tend to our own. So Jesus graciously exposed this truth to the disciples. He made it clear that they lacked ability to tend to their own as well as the crowd's hunger. Let's pause for a moment and acknowledge that it really is a gracious thing for God to expose our need for him. Not our striving, not our strategies, not of our wisdom or intellect can we effectively tend and cure the exhaustion and pain we will experience as we do God's work. And think, without him exposing this, how much time and striving do we waste trying to take care of ourselves? Personally, I look at the world of therapy, which I happen to be a part of. How many secular therapists seek to help their clients overcome stress, anxiety, depression, fatigue, etc., by pointing them to themselves as their solution? If I'm honest, if I'm not careful at times, I can even slip into that trap. It's tricky and it's easy because our sinful hearts push us towards the fruitless endeavor of self-care. We have an entire industry for this. The self-care, self-help industry is no small industry. By some estimates, it has a $450 billion market value. As a society, we are deeply committed to the deception that we can fix our own pain and exhaustion, rebelling against the gracious truth that we need God to tend to us. And Christians, as a part of this society, we fall prey to this lie too often. So I encourage you, examine your hearts. Consider how you might be falling for the lie that you contend to your pain and exhaustion through self-care alone. With that said, a quick aside, fighting against the self-care trend does not mean ignoring your health needs. We should, meet, we should seek to take good care of ourselves as stewardship, to steward well whatever health God has given us. But we should never deceive ourselves into thinking that we are the ones who can grant ourselves that health. Right. When we realize that we can't do this on our own, this paves the way for us to turn to God. 
it is only him that can truly care for us in our pain and exhaustion. But we are a stubborn people, and it can be hard to believe that God will indeed tend to us. So listen to this quick excerpt from the life of the 19th century evangelist George Mueller, and be encouraged that God can show up in mighty and unexpected ways. Early one morning, a girl named Abigail was playing in Mueller's garden on Ashley Down when he took her by the hand. Come, see what our father will do. He led her into a long dining room. The plates and cups and bowls were on the table, but there was nothing on the table but empty dishes. There was no food in the larder and no money to supply the need of the orphans. The children were standing waiting for breakfast. Children, you know we must be in time for school, said Mueller. Then lifting his hands, he prayed. Dear Father, we thank thee for what thou art going to give us to eat. According to the account, a knock was then heard at the door. The baker stood there. Mr. Mueller, I couldn't sleep last night. Somehow, I felt you didn't have bread for breakfast, and the Lord wanted me to send you some. So I got up at two o'clock and baked some fresh bread and have brought it. Mueller thanked the baker and praised God for his care. Children, he said, we not only have bread, but the rare treat of fresh bread. Almost immediately, there was a second knock on the door. This time, it was the milkman who announced that his milk cart had broken down just outside the orphanage and that he would like to give the children his cans of fresh milk so that he could empty his wagon and repair it. Praise be to God, who saw the needs of the orphan and began to prepare to tend to them before they were even hungry. Brothers and sisters, as we seek to do God's work, God tends to us in our pain and in our exhaustion. Jesus fed the 5,000, fed the hungry orphans, and he will feed you in whatever need you may have. And, brothers and sisters, Today's passage not only shows us that Jesus will tend to us in our pain and exhaustion, but that as he does so, he will satisfy us in abundance. This last point is all about remembering who it is that tends to us. Jesus did not forget this, and neither should we. Verse 41 reads, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. Jesus turned to his heavenly father in order to tend to the pangs of hunger the crowd was experiencing. Jesus turned to the God of the universe, the God who spoke all things into being by the word of his power and who made life out of nothing. The God who provided an ark during the flood and dry land again after. The God who provided a way out of Egypt and manna and meat in the wilderness. The God who provided a promised land, who made it rich, flowing with milk and honey. A God who provided protection to his people and discipline in their waywardness. The God who provided his son for our sins and his spirit for our comfort and sanctification. This this is the God that Jesus turned to. This is the God that we turn to. Church, when we seek out God to tend to us in pain and exhaustion, it would be nothing less than insanity to expect anything but satisfaction when we do so. 
And this is what the disciples in the crowd found. Satisfaction. 42. And they all ate and were satisfied. But it wasn't just satisfaction that they were met with, but an abundance of it. 43 reads on, And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish, and those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Church, we are a five loaves and two fish kind of people, but we serve a 12 baskets of abundance kind of God. A God who doesn't just cease to run out, but a God who offers us a surplus. Praise be to God. I want to pause here briefly and address anyone that might be new to church, anyone who might not know Jesus. Because it needs to be stated that Jesus doesn't just meet us in our pain and exhaustion, but he also satisfies us in our need for forgiveness. If you're honest with yourself, you know that all of your seeking to save yourself falls short, just like your efforts to tend to yourself do as well. In the midst of our sin, God provided a savior. And through the death and resurrection of Jesus, no matter how bad we feel we are, God's abundant grace will satisfy our need for forgiveness. So I encourage you, consider trusting in him today. See what those abundant riches for you might look like. And if you do so, I also encourage you, tell someone about this decision after the church. Let's celebrate together. And now, Jacob's Well, here is my final challenge for you. If I met with you in my office, I might call it your homework. I want you to consider how you might fail to trust that God can satisfy you in abundance. Where might you be holding back? And what might you be settling for to satisfy you instead of God's rich mercies? Or we could phrase it another way. Church, we are called to do God's work. And as we go about doing this, we will experience pain and exhaustion just as the disciples did. As you turn to God to tend to you in the midst of this, what might it look like to trust that he will tend to you and that in that you can find satisfaction and abundance? How might God abundantly satisfy you as you do the work of hosting Matthew meals, discipling and caring for your kids, evangelizing your neighbors and coworkers, serving here at Jacob's Well? doing your job to the glory of God or any of a million different ways God might call you to. I want to leave you with this encouragement from John Newton. John Newton is the writer of our beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. And in this, uh, kind of the end of a letter, uh, he's writing to William Wilberforce. If you don't know much about William Wilberforce, I encourage you, uh, check him out. Uh, He's a really cool guy to learn about. Uh, He loved the Lord, and he was seeking to abolish the slave trade throughout the British Empire as something that he felt directly called to do by God. He had just experienced a setback in this endeavor, however, and so his mentor, John Newton, is writing to him. Newton says, Though you have not, as yet, fully succeeded in your persevering endeavors to abolish the slave trade, the business is still in process, And since you took it in hand, the condition of the slaves in our islands has undoubtedly been already improved. These instances, to which others might be added, are proof that you have not labored in vain. It is true that you live in the midst of difficulties and snares, and you need a double guard of watchfulness and prayer, 
But since you know both your need of help and where to look for it, I may say to you, as Darius to Daniel, thy God whom thou servest continually is able to preserve and deliver you. Daniel likewise was a public man and in critical circumstances, but he trusted in the Lord, was faithful in his department, and therefore, though he had enemies, they could not prevail against him. Indeed, the great point for our comfort in life is to have a well-grounded persuasion that we are where, all things considered, we ought to be. Then, it is no great matter whether we are in public or in private life, in a city or in a village, in a palace or a cottage. The promise, my grace is sufficient for thee, is necessary to support us in the smoothest scenes and is equally able to support us in the most difficult. Happy the man who is a deep impression of our Lord's words, without me you can do nothing, who feels with the apostle, likewise, a heartfelt dependence upon the Savior through whom we can both do and bear all things that are part of the post allotted to us. He is always near. He knows our wants, our dangers, our feelings, and our fears. By looking to him, we are enlightened and made strong out of weakness. With his wisdom for our guide, his power for our protection, his fullness for our supply, And proposing his glory as our chief end and placing our happiness in his favor in communion with him and communications from him, we shall be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand. May the Lord bless you, my dear sir. May he be your sun and shield and fill you with all joy and peace and believing. Church, without Christ, we can do nothing. May you trust that he is always near, that he sees you. May you trust that through his power, you can bear all things that are a part of the post that he has called you to. And may you experience the abundant satisfaction found in serving our good and gracious Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, you are a God who indeed satisfies us. And Lord, while we look for satisfaction in so many other places, we ask that you would graciously redirect us to you, that you would give us a faith and dependence on you alone to tend to us in our hurts, our pains, and our exhaustion. Lord, praise be to you that you are a God who can do so. In your son's name, amen.